Genesis 3 is where we'll be this morning. We were reading the Bible together as a church this year, and then on Sunday mornings we were walking through the story of the Bible together, uh, helping us to see this redemption of humanity and creation that God came to purchase, seeing that the Bible centers around the person and work of Jesus Christ, the kingdom he came to establish, the glory he came to display. We began this journey uh, last week with Genesis 1 and 2. Jesse walked us through uh, the creation account where God, uh, creator God called everything into existence from nothing and called it all good, except for one thing. It's not good for man to be alone. So he created a helpmate and created man and woman in the image of God, giving mankind instructions to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with image bearers so that all the earth would know who God is and we would rule with God over creation, have dominion over creation with God. We would tend the Garden of Eden. We would feast on the Tree of Life. We would walk with the Lord in the cool of the day. We would be naked and not ashamed and fully enjoy everything God created. That's how the story begins. But you don't have to live very long to know that that is not how we live today. That is not the reality we experience. Something went wrong. And that something is Genesis 3. That's where we will be this morning. Verse 1, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it, or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are more cursed, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and for his wife, and he clothed them. 
The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we are thankful for your word that helps us to understand who we are, where we came from, who you are, and the work that you want to do deep inside of us. And we ask the Spirit of God to take the word of God and do this deep transforming work for the glory of God. We pray in his name. Amen. It's really hard to describe or even comprehend a a singular event that carries this much weight and importance and transformative power. I mean, we we all saw Thanos snap his fingers uh, last year or a couple years ago, but there was like 20 movies that led up to that, right? Well, Genesis 3 is a singular event that radically transforms all of creation, and we don't really have any backstory. There's backstory, some, that comes later in the story, but right here it's creation, Genesis 1 and 2, boom, and then everything in creation is infected by sin, boom, Genesis 3. Just all of a sudden it happens that quick. We aren't told the true identity of the serpent. That doesn't come until much later in the Bible. We know who this is. But we know that this isn't your typical animal that God created. There's something very sinister and crafty behind the serpent. And he's talking. This is not Narnia. None of the other animals are talking. And he's speaking and having a conversation with Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Well, what did he say? If you look back a few verses, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord commanded the man, you are, to, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. What God commanded as gracious, emphasizing their freedom, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. In the mouth of the serpent, it becomes limited and restricted. The very first words out of the serpent's mouth, which we, of course, find out in Revelation 12, this is Satan, the enemy of God, once an angel, the highest angel, closest to the worship of God, desired the worship of God for himself. So God cast Satan out of heaven along with a third of the angels that rebelled with him. These became demons. But in the very first words out of the serpent's mouth, you basically have the entire playbook of temptation to sin. Take what God intended to be grace and freedom under his commands and make it seem restricted and limited. God's not for your joy by letting you say yes to good things. God is for your misery by making you say no to things that you desire. Well, it works on us. It's very effective. We're very susceptible to believe his lies. And Eve responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You will not eat of it or touch it, or you will die. Now, Eve, is that really what God said? He said, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Yet in her mind and heart, she's already twisted it to say, we can eat from the fruit of the trees. Now we'll see later on, the tree of life shows up in the eternal state. We're eating the fruit of the tree of life and the leaves of the tree of life, healing for the nations. God gave them the freedom of eat any part of the tree, but she's already restricting God's commands. We can, can eat from any fruit of the tree in the garden. 
And then she adds to God's command. He's so restrictive, so limited. We can't eat from that one tree. We can't even touch it. He's just going to kill us. You see hints that Eve is already losing this battle. God's commands are limiting me. They're, they're overbearing. They're so restrictive. There seems to be more freedom maybe outside of his commands. Well, the serpent seizes the opportunity. There's no subtlety now. He's just directly contradicting God's commands. He's wrong, Eve. Verse 4, you won't die. In fact, he's much more sinister than that. He's lying to you. He's keeping something good from you. He can't be believed. He can't be trusted. He's created this whole system of commands to control you and keep you subservient to him and not like him. Keep you from enjoying all that you can enjoy. Satan denies even the punishment of God. You're not going to die while emphasizing the rewards. You will be like him. The serpent, this animal, tells the two beings in all of creation made in the image of God, the two beings in all creation who are already most like God, that there's still more that they can experience to be like God, knowing good and evil. Not letting them in on the reality that Satan knew, they already knew good. Everything was good. The only way they would know evil is by allowing evil to enter their mind and their hearts. This is the essence of temptation, failing to believe the truth of who God is and what he commands and believing a lie about who God is and what he commands. And every single time we sin, it flows from this deficiency in our belief system, our inability to see the truth of who God is and the freedom of his commands, that his commands are intended to fulfill our greatest needs and desires in the best way possible because he made us and knows us. He's put us together and wired us. We have the desires we have because he gave them to us. Sinclair Ferguson illustrates it like this. Uh, imagine a father taking his son to the toy store uh, right at Christmas time and walking his son up and down the aisles of the toy store. What do you want, son? What about that? Would you like to have that? What about this? Would you like to have this? And the, and the son's just going crazy. Yeah, that'd be great, Dad. I'd love to have that, yeah. And just up and down, aisle after aisle, the, the kids are just salivating with anticipation of an amazing Christmas. And the father takes his son to the very end of the store and then looks him in the eye and says, Son, I brought you to this store to let you know you're not going to get any of this. I'm not getting you anything. Let's go home. And in our sinful flesh, it's exactly what we believe about God. That he's not really for our good. He doesn't really really want to give us the desires of our heart. We have to manipulate him. We have to control him. We have to try and trick him. And the entire message of the Bible is trust me. I know you. I wired you. Every desire you have is because I gave it to you. And I have a way through my commands for you to enjoy all these good things in a way that becomes worship and joy, in a way that does not destroy yourself. And in our sinful hearts, we don't believe that. We believe the lie of the enemy, that he is not for us. In our time as an adoptive and foster family, we've learned much from reading and studying and having conversations about the necessity of trust and how when that's broken in a child, even from very, very young ages, even in the womb, It causes all kinds of issues that you begin to deal with in these children that will only show up more and more as life goes on. 
And in our sin nature, that is the issue that is broken in us. Our inability to trust and believe God and believe he is really for our good. If we will walk in his ways the way he has showed us. And there's got to be a way to meet our greatest desire and needs outside of God's way that's better. But God's saying, trust me. And Satan works overtime to get us to doubt that. Just as he was doing with Eve. Well, by this point, in verse 5, Eve, Eve is just sunk. Verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Now there is missing a verse somewhere in the first six verses where it should say Adam grabs a serpent and breaks its neck. But in the providence of God, that would be the work of the second Adam. In this case, Adam fell into the one, one of the two traps that we fall into as men all the time. We're either dominating as men or we're do-nothing, do-nothing guys as men. And we kind of swing that pendulum back and forth usually with our, our spouses or our kids or others. Adam here in this case is a do-nothing guy standing idly by while the serpent deceives his wife. She took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And in that instant... Everything changes. In fact, the language of verse 6, saw, took, ate, gave, he ate, rapid fire. They're not considering consequences. They're just acting. They're just acting. No longer naked and unashamed. They're now filled with shame. And in their shame, they need to do what we all do when we feel shame. We want to hide. So the nakedness symbolizing their innocence is gone. Like when your kids are young and they have no problem running around the house naked, even if people are over, they don't care. doesn't matter. Now that innocence is gone, first they hid from each other by sewing together fig leaves uh, or leaves from a fig tree. A picture of our pathetic and their pathetic attempt to hide their shame and nakedness. They don't even understand the insufficiency of fig leaves to cover them. The fig leaves will eventually rot. The fig leaves will eventually decay and dry up. They won't be sufficient. We look just as ridiculous trying to hide our sins. We think we're fooling other people. We're not. We can can put on a show for a season and make people think, oh, we're good. But eventually, over time, who you really are and the sins you're really embracing will bubble to the surface, which is why it's really important if we want to maintain the facade of religion that we keep our relationships confined to this space. We could probably fool people for a long time if all we're doing is engaging with people in this space. Come up here in this building, put on a show for a couple hours each week. You could stretch that out for decades. No one really knows you. No one really knows who you are and what you struggle with and the sins you battle. So if we want to maintain the facade of religion, then just keep everything in this space. And we get, may get tired of terms and expressions like doing life together, authenticity, transparency, because we use them so much. But the alternative Hiding in our sin and shame is far worse. We need deep life and relationships with each other so that our sins do come to the surface so that we can now deal with them instead of just living a life of pretending. And everyone really, no one really knows who you really are because you're just keeping everybody at surface level. We don't need our sins to come to the surface so we can revel in them You know, well, I'm just a three. That's just what you're going to get. Deal with it. We need them to come to the surface so we can repent of them. And so deep relationships help that to happen. 
And also the, the, the byproduct of that is as well as we stay in those deep relationships, we begin to experience the fruits of repentance, we begin to grow and get transformed, and other people are rejoicing because they look at our life and they see growth and maturity. You know, you used to be this and now you're this, and we're thankful for that. Well, Adam and Eve hide from each other through their fig leaves, and now in verse 8 they will hide from God. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? This beautiful imagery of what a normal day in the life of the relationship with God and humanity in the garden looked like, walking in the cool of the day at the time of the evening breeze. And for the first time ever, God shows up to do this and they can't be found, which is the effect of sin. We run from him, not to him. But just as Jesus tells us in Luke 19.10 that he's come to seek and save the lost, this picture of God coming to Adam and Eve in their sin, God pursuing them in their sin while they are hiding, is the seeking nature of our Father in heaven coming after his lost children, leaving the 99 to come after the one. He takes the initiative to come after us in our sin. And that may be you. Like here this morning, you're sitting here in front of all these people, but in your heart you're hiding. You're trying to hide from other people, hide your sin, keep it covered up, hide from God. Maybe he won't notice me with all these other religious people. And God is here, the Spirit of God is here, the Word of God is here to call you out, to come after you and call you out, to ask you, where are you? Where are you this morning? And the Lord does that in verse 9, saying to Adam, where are you? God being omniscient, he's not asking out of his ignorance. He's asking for the sake of their self-examination, for them to have their eyes open to the reality of that question. Where are we indeed? Here is our Father to walk with us in the cool of the day, and we're hiding in the trees. What are we doing? And notice God seeking out Adam. You may be wondering, why Adam? Eve was the one who talked to the serpent. She's the one who started all this. If you're thinking that, you're probably a man, Right? You're thinking just like Adam was thinking. Why are you coming at me? It's this woman you gave me. Now, we learn in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. It wasn't just that Adam had the responsibility of leadership to lead and protect Eve, but in this instance, he was also the only one seen clearly. He wasn't deceived. He was the one most equipped to fight off the attacks of the enemy in this case. Not always that way. But in this case, Adam was most able and failed, and so God comes at him first. The one most responsible. And the blame game begins. Adam blames Eve, the Eve blames the lying serpent, and then God brings judgment for their transgression. The serpent is cursed, the only creature made by God to be cursed. Uh, mosquitoes also, but that's in another version of the Bible. The serpent will crawl on the ground in humiliation. Whatever form he had before, now he will crawl and in verse 15, you have the beginning of a war. He said to the woman, uh, rather, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. War, enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman, between his offspring and her offspring. Another theme you can trace through the entire story of the scriptures. Highly unusual to talk about the offspring of a woman and not include the man. But this battle would con continue until the serpent strikes her, her seed on the heel. An injury 
but not a fatal injury. And then the seed would crush the head of the serpent, which in the case of a serpent is a fatal blow. And here we have what we have called and said in this church probably 500 times, what's been called in theology, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, the imagery of the wounded conqueror of the serpent. And for this wounded warrior to be the seed of the woman, hinting at the virgin birth of Jesus. For women, their judgment, pain would come in childbearing, and her relationship with her husband would be filled with tension. It would always exist between men and women in their relationship. You have conflict in your marriage. Of course you have conflict in your marriage. You're two sinful people. And the, and the close relationship like marriage is going to be conflict. It goes all the way back to the garden. It would be difficult in a sin-cursed world. Now for men, their pain, same word, their pain would come in laboring in their work. Conflict between man and his labor. The serpent is cursed and the ground is cursed, which makes labor fruitful, yes, but hard. And of course, at the end of verse 19, you have the promise of physical death. Death would come, separation, but not immediately. God was gracious to uh, give that space. Adam names Eve, which means life, evidence of his faith in God that life would flow through her and the promised seed would come. And then God does for them what they failed at earlier. Their feeble attempt to cover their nakedness is replaced here with God's sufficient covering of their nakedness by introducing the first physical death recorded in the Bible. God slaughters an innocent animal to use the skin of the animal to sufficiently cover their nakedness, their shame. And then as an act of mercy, he does not allow them to remain in the garden so that in their fallen state they would continue to eat from the tree of life and live forever. He evicts them, puts a guard on duty so that no fallen creature would ever be able to enter the garden again and get to the tree of life. And the tree of life disappears from the pages of the scriptures. You do not see it again until the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, the eternal state. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. No more curse. We can feast on the tree of life again. Several themes emerge from this chapter that will flow through the rest of the redemption story of God. The providence and sovereignty of God over all creation. God and Satan are not locked into a mano a mano, wilder versus fury duel between yin and yang or light and dark. This is not what we have pictured in the Bible. The serpent is created, Satan is created. Uh, being in, in, in a created being, an inherent in a creator making all things from nothing is that the creator is sovereign over everything he makes. Notice man and woman speak to God, play the blame game, yes, but they speak to God as image bearers. The serpent never speaks to God. He has no voice. He, has, he just does what God says and receives what God has coming for him. And some may say, well, then why allow him in the first place? If it's, if it's something that God, you know, uh, uh, doesn't have a choice over, in other words, Satan is not this entity God can't stop, so if Satan had sovereignty over him, then why even allow him in the first place? Why not just wipe him off the face of creation now? Why, why just curse him and send him out to wreak havoc for the next thousands upon thousands of years? It's a hard question, a hard answer. It's a hard answer for, for several reasons. 
uh, because, because God has ordained that he would remain and that for a spe- specified period of time, he would be allowed to continue to deceive, lie, steal, kill, and destroy. And billions upon billions of people are suffering at his hand because of the curse of sin and the world system that he set up. It's, it's a hard answer to give about why God has done the things the way he's done the things that he's done. And so it's a hard answer even if we have a logical solution to the question right? It doesn't take away the pain and suffering. It doesn't take away the hurt and the torment. And so I'm hesitant to even give an answer because we're so intellectual. We might just check the intellectual box. Oh, thank you for giving me that answer. I can't wait till somebody ask me. And we won't enter into the suffering and the pain of those who are hurting at the hands of sin and hurting and suffering because of their own sin. Even Jesus wept over Lazarus right before he raised Lazarus. So I hesitate to give that logical answer because I don't want to give anyone the impression that, oh, good, I got the answer. The logical answer for why it's still somewhat mysterious, the, uh, the logical answer rather is still somewhat mysterious, but the basic idea is God has ordained for sin and evil to enter crea- creation, allow Satan to remain for this season so that in the end God would get more glory and worship. So in the end, God is always working for our good and for his glory. In the end, he would receive more glory, more worship by creating a universe where this could happen and God's holiness, justice, and righteousness would be on display, yes, but also his love, grace, and mercy to come after a a fallen and broken and sinful humanity and redeem us through himself. We would learn more about God's character and nature, not less. And God would be loved more because we know him more. God would be worshipped more because we know him more. God would get more glory because we know him more. And there's still mystery to that. So don't don't take that, oh, I got it, piece of cake. There's, There's layers upon layers of mystery to that that make that difficult to understand. But don't check the brain box and turn off your heart to, and, and, and lose the ability to weep and show empathy and sympathy for the suffering that sin causes in our world, in this room, in your home. Countless numbers of people who, who are spending their last day on earth today before they enter a Christless eternity. If the suffering, the physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological suffering of other image bearers ever quits moving your heart, God have mercy and give us this gift of repentance and softening to love people in the way he loves them. But we'll see this theme of God's providence and sovereignty over all creation just emerge from the pages of scripture the rest of this year we'll also see God's swift and complete judgment against sin they ate one piece of fruit from the tree that seems like an overreaction don't you think God death for one small thing which is exactly how we measure sin right it's just one small sin it's just one word of gossip or slander they're not going to find out telling this person who really wants to know so they can pray for them, right? It's just one short video to watch. It's just one 
issue of gluttony or indulgence or lust or anger. It's just one thing. It's not going to end the world. I'm probably not going to go to hell because of this one sin. And when we measure sin like that, then we reveal how little we grasp the holiness of God and how abhorrent sin is. It's, it's hard for me to even say this because I know myself. I'm like, you doofus, you need this more than anybody here. <laughs> when are you moving? Today is his last Sunday, just announcing. It only reveals how little we even know ourselves and how dark our sin-cursed natures really are. The Nazis, for instance, the Nazis are easy targets for everybody, right? White supremacy that carries it on. Almost universally despised and hated. It's got to be like 99% of people unapproval rating or disapproval rating in our country. Uh, Nazis, white supremacy. After World War II, various Nazi officers and leaders were arrested and eventually put on trial. One of the most famous was Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was the mastermind behind the Jewish death camps and the genocide of the Jews. During his trial, a Jewish survivor of a death camp, Yehul Denur, no idea how to say his name, we'll say Denur. Denur was brought in to testify against Eichmann, and when Denur walks into the courtroom, he sees Eichmann and is overcome with emotion, weeping, sobbing, falls on the ground, eventually faints, passes out. In 1983, 22 years later, Mike Wallace, for 60 minutes, interviews Denur and shows him this clip and asks him, why did you have this reaction? Why were you overwhelmed with this emotion? Was it hatred for this man? Was it fear of your oppressor? And Denur shocked Wallace and everyone since then when he responded, no, no, no. It wasn't any of that. I came in, I looked at Eichmann, and I saw that he was not a demon. He was not some superhuman. I saw that Eichmann was just like me. And if Eichmann could have done that, then I could do that. He tells Wallace, Eichmann is in all of us. Guys, that's the level of awareness of our sinful natures that we really need God to help us to see. We're protected from experiencing the full darkness of our sin nature because society and life boundaries and peer pressure and the fear of consequences and other gifts of God's grace that keeps our culture from, from becoming the purge, from becoming just sin running amok through the streets. As bad as it is, it could be much worse. But Jesus could say in Matthew 5 that hating your brother is the same as murdering him and lusting after someone is the same as adultery because if we're doing those things and indulging in those things in our hearts and minds, the only reason we haven't actually killed somebody and we haven't actually committed adultery with someone is because of the fear of consequences or because of the lack of opportunity. That's it. We've already done it inside. We're so good at justifying and rationalizing our sin. Yeah, let's talk about the Nazis. Man, I'm... I'm nowhere close to that. We're so good at comparing ourselves to others that we consider worse than us. We're so good at whitewashing the sin nature inside of us and shrugging off our sins. Everybody's going to sin. Nobody's perfect. But when you read through the story of the Bible and you see the reality of sin and how much God hates it, and we realize how infected we are, 
then we begin to properly grasp Eichmann is inside of all of us. And it's only the grace and mercy of God that we're not as evil as we could be. Which is the third theme that will follow throughout the redemption story of God, and that is God's gracious provision of redemption. The seed of the woman will come, God tells Adam and Eve. And from our first two parents, that promise of a coming redeemer became ingrained in God's people, passed down from generation to generation. And as the story progresses, God begins to add more and more details. This seed of the one becomes known as the anointed one, the Messiah who would come. And messianic prophecies begin to emerge from the text and from the prophets of God and God's people. And And religious leaders, by the time of Jesus, were not arguing over if the Messiah would come, but they were arguing over the details of his coming, what it would be like. Still today, arguing over because they don't believe he's come yet. Anna and Simeon in Luke 2 saw eight-day-old Jesus and rejoiced that they saw the Messiah before they died. One of the few who saw through the eyes of faith who he really was. In the last 2,000 years of church history, it's this one resounding message. He has come. This Jesus of Nazareth, this historical figure who lived in the first century, who did all these perfect things that were attested to by signs and wonders and miracles, who had this authoritative teaching, this Jesus who was hated by the religious but loved by his disciples, who didn't fully get get who he was, he lived the perfect life that you and I fail at every day. He died the sacrificial death that we deserve to die because of our sins. He rose from the dead proving and verifying everything he did was actually true. This is the seed of the woman. Not only has he come, but he did it. He crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent is crushed. The serpent who led astray our first parents has been crushed. The defeat, the victory has been purchased. And it's available for us. It's available to tell other people about. He is the second Adam who confronted Satan in the wilderness and did not give into temptation and did not sit idly by. But when after our enemy, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. He is the innocent one who was slain that we would not be covered in animal skins but in the robes of his righteousness. He is the way, the truth, and the life whom we get life from even as we continue to live in these sin-cursed bodies, in this sin-cursed world with our enemies still at work. He is our great shepherd who walks with us in the cool of the day while the evening breeze is blowing and leads us to green pastures and beside still waters. He is the redeemer of our marriages so that in him we're not bound to just sin against each other. But we can experience redemption, reconciliation, restoration, so that husbands and wives can love and respect to each other. They can be naked and not ashamed together and demonstrate to the world a picture of the love between Jesus and his church, a picture of the gospel. Humanity can toil, but Jesus can redeem our work, and we can create helpful and beautiful things through our hard work that God can use to display his image to others and bring glory and worship to himself. He is the one. He's came. He's come. He's, he did it. It's finished. And now we get to enjoy it and we get to share it. And I close with the question that God gave to Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where are you? Are you walking in this love relationship with your Father in heaven through his son Jesus, believing him, trusting his every word? His way is best. 
Is your life consumed with believing the lies about him and hiding in sin and shame? Jesus has come. Come out of hiding. Be who you really are. Put it on the table. Your Father in heaven responds to that kind of transparency and authenticity with grace, not condemnation, not shame. He wants to clothe you and give you life. We are all amazingly sinful and in desperate need of Jesus. Let him love you. Let him clothe you. Let him give you life. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. We're amazingly sinful. So sinful. It would repulse everyone in this room to know truly the deepest and darkest parts of our sin nature in our mind and heart. But you're not repulsed. In fact, the more open we become, the more transparent we become, the more honest we become, then the more love and grace you give us. And when church is most beautiful, that's more love and grace we show to each other. We are so sinful that you had to die, but we are so loved you were glad to die. And I ask that that would be true of everyone in this room, of more and more people in our city and to the nations and beyond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.